From South Carolina Public Radio, this is Walter Edgar's Journal. I'm Walter Edgar, welcoming you to our podcast series about South Carolina culture and history with a nod to all things Southern. Today, Alfred Turner and I will be talking with author, scholar, and preservationist Christina Ray Butler, author of the book, Charleston Horsepower, Equine Culture in the Palmetto City. We'll talk about an equine-powered city from colonial times to the 20th century in which horses and mules pervaded all aspects of urban life. And we'll learn about the people who made their living with these animals, from drivers, grooms, and carriage makers to farriers, veterinarians, and trainers. As well as being a professor of historic preservation at the American College of Building Arts in Charleston, Christina is an adjunct faculty member at the College of Charleston in the Historic Preservation and Community Planning Program. She is also the owner-operator of Butler Preservation, LLC, and she works as a barn shift manager for Palmetto Carriage Works in Charleston. Today's conversation was recorded before a live audience at All Good Books in the Five Point section of Columbia, South Carolina. Christina? Welcome back to the journal. Thank you for having me again. Well, when you wrote that wonderful book, The Low Country at High Tide, you talked about how they filled in all the marshes with this, that, and the other. And I found it interesting that one of the things the city sanitation workers did back from the 1700s on was to collect the horse manure and fill in the swamps and then put a little lay of dirt and then the next thing I know, you've got a fancy suburb of Charleston. <laughs> and they wonder why we still flood. <laughs> is that the connection between this book and your last book? Is, is that what got your attention? Well, I think it's a good physical connection. So for anybody who hasn't read Low Country at High Tide, we have no stone indigenous to the Low Country coast. So we used anything and everything, including all sorts of organic materials we shouldn't have used to almost double the size of Charleston's peninsula. And of all the things you wouldn't want in your backyard to create a new lot next to you, it would be literal tons of manure. But we absolutely used that. Um, And essentially, it was horses carrying all of their own waste to another part of the city to create new territory. So uh, a gross but a good connection between the two books. (laughs) Well, I, I think people need to understand that well into the 20th century, Charleston depended upon equine power, whether it was the fire department, the police department, or hauling goods to the port. Absolutely. And it's a story that can be echoed in every city before automobiles. It's equines doing most of the work. But it's a, I think, more effective story to tell in Charleston, not only because we still have horse carriages on the streets, but more so because we have some of the strictest preservation laws in the country. So throughout our city, you still see visual reminders of our equine heritage, you know, carriage houses and stables that have been reused as pool houses and residences, carriage mounting blocks, horse ties. It's all still there for visitors and locals to experience. And one of the things that was interesting in working on the book is 
you would find horses in every neighborhood of the city. And oddly enough, like Dr. Edgar said, right into the 20th century, but oddly, not just in economically disadvantaged parts of the city. Some of the longest in-use stable buildings were into the 1950s, where there's just maybe one horse behind an elite resident's house. They'd had that stable building for generations. It was probably just, you know, the granddaughter's favorite pony that still lived back there. But literally everywhere in the city, you would have seen horses and mules. And if that granddaughter's pony was still there, she had to have a license, right? Absolutely. So just like you would license a a modern vehicle, if you were driving on the city streets, you had to have a carriage license. So I likened it earlier when we were talking to a bicycle versus a car. You know, technically, you're supposed to get a city license for a bike. Most people don't. And it would be similar for kids just riding on horseback or racing, which was illegal, through the streets of Charleston. But if it was for your private transportation or for shipping, for industry, you had to have a license. And that was wonderful for me because it left a great paper trail for trying to figure out just how many vehicles and how many horses were crowding our streets. And it was a pretty dense uh, equine environment. And how do you figure the number of horses for uh, a town like Charleston, let's just say in uh, 1850? How do you you take the city population and then figure out how many horses and mules there are in the city? So that was difficult. I looked at human census records and then tried to look at plats and maps, just trying to figure out how many equine buildings there were. One of the struggles was A lot of people don't always pull licenses for things that they should. And I knew, because I had physical evidence in Platts, that there was all kinds of stables no one ever pulled a building permit for, tucked, you know, on postage stamp size lots throughout the city. So my conservative estimate was around one horse to every 20 humans. And that's actually pretty high. Most cities, it's more one to 30 or one to 35. And that, again, that continued right into the 20th century. And we had, of course, horses and cars side by side, but that dichotomy lasted longer in Charleston than most other cities as well. For economic reasons, we'll probably touch on in a bit. Yeah, and and you mentioned those in the city, but that doesn't count those that came in every day, literally to bring produce to the markets and then carry goods from the uh, ship. And of course, those horses aren't going to wait till they get out of town before nature calls. (laughs) Right. They're going to leave a mess for the other horses to collect and dump in the marsh for landfill. So Dr. Edgar's right. There would have been probably hundreds, if not thousands of horses coming in and out of the city from the low country farms and plantations every single day. I think we need to make explicit. We talked about this before we went on the air. The the railhead that brought things to and from Charleston, from the rest of South Carolina and the rest of the country It did not go into the city, so anybody wanting to ship something into Charleston and then get it out to the rest of the country, there was a whole industry of Teamsters and wagons, right? Well, that's because when Charleston built the longest railroad at that time in the 1830s to go to basically North Augusta, uh, to Hamburg, uh, they did not want the noise of steam engines within the city limits. In fact, steam engines of any kind were banned within the city limits. So, yeah, they had this wonderful way to get the railroad to tap the cotton market of the upcountry. But then those bales of cotton had to be unloaded and put on horse-drawn or mule-drawn wagons 
carry to the to the port. So it basically fueled an entire industry of delivery drivers, what we would call carters or wagoners or draymen. And they loved it because it basically guaranteed them work. The planters and the factors absolutely hated it because it drove up the cost of shipping goods out of Charleston anywhere from 12 to 20% extra. So if you can imagine whether you were coming in by rail or river, everything's being offloaded and then it has to go across the Charleston Peninsula to be reloaded. So we think about King Street as being the commercial corridor, and it is. That's where everybody shops. But you also would have had the equivalent of bumper-to-bumper carts carrying cotton and rice and every plantation good at a mule's pace across downtown Charleston to reload at the waterfront to ship out to customers. So it's about the pace of traffic today. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there was a difference, and you have a statistic. Let's just take one equine, whether it's a mule or a horse, and over the course of a year, how much did that um, animal deposit on the streets of Charleston? Um, actual tons. So it depends, of course, on the size of the animal. And in Charleston, we had normal size horses, quarter horses, thoroughbreds that you would ride. We had draft mules. They weigh around eleven to 1,200 pounds. And then by the 1880s, we had increasingly large draft horses, Belgians, French Percherons. Those boys can produce 35 pounds of manure a day, uh, anywhere from, you know, 15 to 20 gallons of urine. So again, it's not a pleasant topic, but that is a lot of waste. And some of that would have been in their own stables. Some of it would have been on the streets. But still, if anybody's ever cleaned a stall, that's a full-time job, you know, and somebody would have to ship all of that loaded in a cart and move it off of your property because you run out of space very quickly if you have one or two horses on an 80 by 40 foot lot in downtown Charleston. Okay. Tonnage per year. Tonnage per year. You estimated. Oh, I'm so bad at math. Uh, Seven tons. Yeah, I was going to say four to seven tons, depending on the size of the horse. Wow. And particularly one of those big Percherons would produce a fair amount. Absolutely. When did the first horses come to Charleston? You found record of. I did. So the first horses uh, predate the English settlement of downtown Charleston. So the the Spanish had tried with varying degrees of success to colonize parts of what's now South Carolina. And in the process, as they abandoned sites like St. Helena, they left horses behind. Uh, And it's an interesting breed that evolved out of those lost Spanish horses. That's a heritage breed that's actually having a big resurgence called the Marsh Tacky. They're very small horses. So about 14 hands. So for anybody who's used to seeing racehorses on TV, a good foot shorter than that. But they're hardy horses. And basically how they were able to survive without humans feeding them is they just ate marsh grass and kind of rolled around the low country. So they're small, but they're hardy animals. And they rose to fame mostly because Francis Marion wrote Marsh Tackies, you know, in the guerrilla wars in the back country during uh, the American Revolution. So they were here before the English settlers even showed up. But as soon as the British created Charleston and the surroundings, they started, especially elites, importing racehorses from England. And if you can imagine how expensive and difficult that would be to take a, you know, 
pure-blooded, expensive horse from England and carry it over on a ship, probably in some kind of uncomfortable sling, um, which is what they still do a version of when they ship race horses a, a, a in the sli- air. A sling. So if you can imagine a horse, they have very flimsy legs and ankles. So you couldn't really expect them to stay stable on a boat. It's going to rock. So you can imagine kind of a leather cradle to sort of help support that animal in transit. So that would have been difficult and very expensive. But low country planters, they wanted what they had in England. They wanted them for racing and they wanted pretty teams of horses to pull their expensive carriages. Very much like a sports car today, conspicuous consumption. And you're trying to keep up with the latest. So, so they, they wanted their MGB and what happened. Absolutely. And, and you mentioned carriages because that's a big part of the story. If you look at the advertisements in the colonial newspapers, there are more than just two or three carriage makers in the city of Charleston. Anything from a one-horse shay, as you say it, to this something that would look like the Queen's Coronation coach. And you have a description of coats of arms by these South Carolinians showing off their money. Henry Lawrence was one of the best examples I found. Um, He, his son rather, had ordered a very expensive carriage, not from a Charleston maker, from somewhere else in South Carolina. And the description of what he wanted was so long, I couldn't even put the whole thing in the book. Down to exactly what color green the seat cushions should be, what color he wanted the lettering on the side of the carriage, what the lug nut covers should look like because he didn't want to see any grease. And the carriage arrived and he decided it was too bulky and it was too tall and his wife had a hard time getting into it. So custom carriage, you know, probably the equivalent of a $100,000 vehicle. And he just sent it back, said, remake it, um, with a whole long description, almost as long as the original order for what was wrong and how to perfect that design. <laughs> well, well, having worked on the papers of Henry Lawrence, I'm not surprised at all. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, I get a question about horses. You were talking about racehorses. Was there ever a place to race horses that is within the modern city limits? Do you know? Absolutely. So some of the earlier race courses exist only now on paper, right. uh, like new market race course. It's under a, a modern subdivision. But the best physical evidence we still have of racing is Hampton Park, which is in the middle, mm. now in the middle of downtown Charleston, historically would have been in the unincorporated suburbs. It's really just a couple miles from downtown. So that race course transformed into an exposition fairgrounds at the turn of the 20th century. And then they tried briefly to revive horse racing We even had a carriage racing loop just a couple blocks away to the north of Hampton Park. But the writing was on the wall and car racing was becoming more popular. And so essentially that race course got turned into a park and the oval track still exists. You just bicycle and drive on it, but it's still right there in the middle of the city. Hmm. And of course, if you're going to have organized horse racing and in South Carolina, you had did have a jockey club in the colonial period. Also, in the countryside, outside Charleston, any little parish fair would have horse racing. And you had gambling to go along with the horse racing. Always. Uh, but, but the Charleston Jockey Club uh, had a regular season, which became part of the social world of 18th and 19th century Charleston. Absolutely. And I think that's an important connection. I'm, I'm Charleston-centric because I live there and I eat, sleep, and breathe Charleston history. But 
Horses were a, a really good connection between upcountry elites and low country elites. So as Dr. Edgar mentioned, the racing circuit, it wasn't just one or two races. It was a series of races throughout the season. And the culmination was Charleston Race Week, which of course happened at Hampton Park and some of the other downtown tracks that are unfortunately gone. But People like the Manning family in, you know, Sumter, South Carolina, they were part of that circuit. And not only were they gambling and having fun and sometimes losing a lot of money, they were also making connections. It was a chance for your elite daughters to meet low country planters sort of in in the background of the equestrian world. So most women, of course, weren't going to ride through the streets of Charleston, not the elite women, but we do have records and Northern visitors were struck by the volume of carriages that we had and that they saw elite women driving carriages. I mean, it was always better to have a liveried chauffeur, you know, with your fancy Lawrence lettered carriage. Someone else can take you around, but women did, they did drive. I mean, they were part of the horse world. They were at the races in a separate box, but they were there watching and gambling and making connections. Absolutely. Well, when you talked about women in carriages in Charleston, that was a surprise to me because if you owned a carriage, I would have thought there would have been a footman or a driver in the household uh, and that the woman would have sat very nicely in the back seat uh, with her parasol if it was an open carriage. But but yeah. you, you find them at they were actually driving and I think that's that was very interesting to me. I was surprised by that too. So when I was doing research, I ha- I found hardly any female dray drivers. You know, women aren't doing work driving. They're not doing delivery driving. But um they were driving their own vehicles. It it wouldn't have been a regular thing that probably would have just been the most elite women who had multiple carriages in the household. So imagine the enslaved coachman is already busy and she wants to make a day trip. And a popular, kind of morbid, but popular day driving trip was to go to the cemeteries on the neck, like Magnolia Cemetery, to get away from the clutter and the noise and the manure of the city and just sort of ride your carriage around the graveyard. And we have some great diary references to women who who liked going to the cemetery in their carriages. Why not? That wonderful cemetery was built in the the pre-Civil War days, and it was uh, an Elysian park. It was not the old-fashioned church cemetery. It was designed with gardens and ponds and what have you. Yeah, very beautiful, romantic landscape. And that was sort of the point, was that it would be a nice escape from the city. Not as large as Central Park, but effective. And of course, it was designed for carriages. And if you guys get a chance to go, anybody who's listening, you can still see the sandy carriage tracks that go throughout that graveyard. Um, Another pre-Civil War site in downtown Charleston that was designed for horses is the Battery, the High Battery. So that's a promenade where people could sort of look at the mansions and look out at the Cooper River and see the ships coming and going. But that road was specifically designed as a carriage promenade. And we've modernized it and paved it and widened it a bit. But again, Northerners were struck by all of the carriages. Think of um, Bel Air's cruising down a 1950s Main Street. You're, you're cruising for friends. You want to be seen. That's what's happening at the Battery. And people are just riding around in circles, looking for their friends and showing off. Well, um, back to a, a, a topic that Civil War, pre-Civil War Charlestonians had to deal with, and we, we've got those seven tons a year dro- being dropped. There's, there's a reason why boot scrapers were at every doorstep in the city of Charleston. 
They were a necessity because disposal of that waste is still an issue today in the city of Charleston. And Charleston's try to, tried to regulate that over time. Uh, interestingly, you might want to talk about that. The diaper? <laughs> the infamous diapers. So, you know, historically, animals weren't necessarily a luxury. A thoroughbred might be, but everybody relied on them for everything. So people were just used to sights and smells that we now are sort of appalled by. Um, there's stories about New York and some pretty offensive photographs of what looks like small mountains in the city. And it's actually just piles of manure because there was so much volume. And whenever they would have a garbage strike, there was no one to clean it up. Charleston was better about that. Our scavengers um, typically were enslaved men driving mule carts. They came through the city multiple times a week to clean all that up, but they're not there 24 hours a day and they're not coming to pick up things, you know, in the evening. So we we expect that manure to go away more quickly now than we did in the past. So today, Charleston has one of the biggest carriage tourism industries in the United States. And some people love it and some people hate it. Uh, one of the big complaints is we go very slow and we produce a lot of manure. So since the 1970s, our equines have in the city been required to wear diapers. The only ones who don't have to are the mounted police because they got to move quickly and they can't be having the literal baggage of a diaper <laughs> attached to the back of the animal. But it's sort of a, a small little vinyl sack, if you will. And the animals are out for an hour at a time maximum, and then they come back to the barn and those diapers are emptied. And we put all of that waste in big dumpsters and it gets carted away probably to the landfill at Bees Ferry every morning. So same story, just moved a little bit further from the city. Okay. But people do complain about the odor because horses urinate in the streets. And does the city have a reaction force for that? They absolutely do. So um, as you mentioned, when a 2,000-pound animal goes to the bathroom, it's a pretty large volume of urine. So the way the city deals with that is we have an equine sanitation department, and every carriage company has to pay for that service. So it used to be rather low-tech that an animal went to the bathroom, and you put a little half-rubber ball with a flag on it, and you dropped it, and somebody would drive around and hose the street off. Now it's 2023, so all the drivers have a little GPS tracker. And when the animal goes, you just click the button and the crew knows exactly within, you know, coordinates where that animal so, went to so, the so there's an app for that. Oh, there is an app. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Well, you, you mentioned that the, the carriage trade and the largest in the, the country, that puts a lot of pressure on the neighborhoods. How does the city regulate that? Uh, very carefully. So we've, as the industry has grown, regulations have changed. But the, the short version is we are only allowed in certain parts of the city and we all leave from the market, which is sort of in the center of the tourist part of the historic district. But I can understand why somebody would not want to be stuck behind us if they're in a rush trying to get to work. So the way it's regulated 
is essentially every time a carriage leaves to go on tour, they check in at a little city hut and a city official will run a bingo machine and there's different color balls and each one corresponds to different routes. So it, it's a literal lottery. No tourist knows where they're going to go until they stop at the city hut. And the purpose of that is so we're not all in a parade going down the same street at the same time. So there's roughly nine iterations of different routes. And we have different ingress and egress. So you can imagine looping the battery in opposite directions just to keep the traffic volume down. Uh, We're not allowed to operate in the evenings. And that's one of the things that sets us apart from New Orleans, which has the other largest carriage industry. We can run on one small commercial loop at night. Very few companies bother. In New Orleans, they run in the day, they have a hiatus in the heat of the day, and then they run in the evening. So there's mules trotting through the French Quarter down Bourbon Street at 10 at night, which is very different from the aesthetic in Charleston, where we're going slowly and we're out in the day and we're in predestined parts of the city. So it's 27 tags is the maximum number of carriages that can be out at a time. Okay. Well, a while back in New York, there was a concern about uh, the horses around Central Park being used in the middle of the summer and certain temperatures. Does Charleston have that kind of health control for the animals themselves? We absolutely do. The way that's regulated in the city is... uh, a very, very long legal code. And some of the short, more important bits of that are when it hits 95 degrees, we cease operation. Um, it used to be 98 degrees, which was one of the highest thresholds in the country. And if there's a certain temperature and relative humidity combined will close. To be fair, very few visitors want to go on a carriage ride at two o'clock in the afternoon in August um, for obvious reasons. So it sort of regulates itself, but there's also rules about how many tours an animal can do, um, how long their breaks are. So the city requires a 15-minute minimum break, and typically it's more like a half hour to 45 minutes. And And so an animal typically will do five hour long routes during the course of their work day. I'm going to assume that the animals that are used in in the carriage trade are stabled around the peninsula within the city limits? So that's a wonderful question. Most of the the carriage barns, the stables are in the market area because that's where we leave from. But historically, that was one of the biggest hubs for equine stabling because livery stables were there, the ice companies, the milk companies were all in that same part of the city. So when our animals are in Charleston working, they stay stabled in downtown Charleston. In buildings, actually admittedly larger and nicer than what an average animal would have lived in pre-Civil War. However, all of the companies have farms out in the low country and extra animals. So the animals will work for a week or two and then rotate out to the countryside. So we're constantly trailering animals in and out so that they get normal horse breaks. Now, all of these regulations didn't just happen uh, willy-nilly. There were lawsuit after lawsuit by the carriage owners. It took a while to get all of this ironed out. But what you've got now is the result of probably 20 years of regulation, litigation, and what have you. It operates pretty smoothly. It does. And you're so right. There was growing pains. Anybody who has been to Charleston knows we have 
a very high volume of tourists, and we're grateful for them. But we get up to 7 million tourists a year. We have roughly 50,000 actual full-time residents on the Charleston Peninsula. So that that's a, that's a pretty big ratio of local to visitor. That wasn't the case in the 1960s and 70s. You probably had three or four carriage drivers, maybe a couple hundred thousand visitors a year. So the regulatory chapter of the book is definitely not one of the more fun sections to read, but it is important because we're trying to balance livability with a tourist experience. And we Obviously, I'm biased. I like horses. I like the industry. And I would hate to see that tangible part of our equine history go away. But we do have to recognize residents, they like living there too, and they have rights. And so the regulations now run pretty smoothly most of the time. Well, the city still employs horses, mounted police. But until the 1950s, the city had horses with the garbage department and so forth. So we're talking about post-World War II, just like it had been in the 18th century, you've got the city has stables, they have horses, uh, and it wasn't just the police. Absolutely. So as we mentioned at the start, any kind of work that needed to be done before automobiles was, was done with horses. So much like you can leave your dry cleaning out today and someone comes in a van, Lloyd Laundry actually had a delivery service. They would come fetch all of your shirts and bring them back clean in a carriage, you know, a little box truck kind of carriage. So the people who were doing the work with those animals typically in the pre-Civil War era, were either Irish immigrants or enslaved. It, it varied greatly. But historically, our sanitation department, our garbage crew, were enslaved people, probably owned by the city or leased, who were driving small teams of mules through the city to collect the waste. Our fire department was powered by draft horses. And that probably was admittedly one of the more dangerous jobs for a horse. You're galloping through the city streets. You have multi-ton equipment with a steam engine behind you. And then you're trying to pump the brakes and stop quickly. That would have been a chaotic kind of And industry. not to mention the, the surface that they're going over. Yeah. Um, I've, I've often wondered, there's a, we do, there are a couple of cobblestone streets. I just can't imagine a horse even walking over cobblestones successful. I mean, well, you make a very good point. Anyone who's ever driven or tried to bike on them, they are not conducive to wheeled vehicles. They're hard to walk on with hooves or human feet. So cobblestone streets were not a desirable type of paving. It's material that's coming over a ship But ballast. people think that's historic. They do. Well, and it, to be fair, some of those cobblestone streets were installed in the 1930s to give Charleston an old-timey sort of feel. And as you mentioned, we had a lot of manure. So the cobblestone streets would have had clay and probably some filth on top of them. What we used for paving, as you would expect, varied greatly by the economic demographic in different parts of the city. Literal dirt and sand in some areas, Belgian granite block, expensive paving in other parts. And wooden blocks. Yeah. Slippery. Yeah. So uh, Im imagine, you, we talk about the horse, but the, the fireman who's driving that several ton machine at high speed through the city. It's, it's a wonder that more animals were not injured than were. Being a fire horse was the most dangerous occupation in, really with the was. fire department. 
And if you think about firemen, well, fire people and police officers, so Charleston, like every city, had mounted police. And we got rid of that right around 2011 during the global recession. A lot of city governments were just trying to find ways to cut costs. And mounted police went, you know, out with the budget. But Charleston has actually brought them back just a couple years ago, our, our proper mounted police. At what point in time... I'm assuming it became illegal at some point for a person just to saddle off their horse and ride in downtown Charleston. Do you know about when that happened? Interestingly, that's still technically legal. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yes. It's funny the things we regulate and the things that there are strange loopholes for. So to operate a, a commercial vehicle, a carriage tour vehicle, you have to go through various steps and pay for your license and get your little bingo ball tag for every tour. But if somebody wanted to trailer a horse in and ride around, they could. If enough people did that, there would quickly be a law, of course. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> there's actually a couple um, African-American farmers on James Island that every so often will come to Charleston with Western saddles. And it's curious because you'll see them riding down King Street mm -hmm. and nobody knows what to do. They're like, is there a movie being filmed? What's happening? You know, and it's just someone taking the horse to town. It's it's fun, strange, but fun. Well, so in the interest of wrapping up, I, one question I would have is, I'm sure you track the kind of economic impact that equine power had on Charleston over the years. These days, what is that uh, financial impact? Do you know, roughly? Dollars, I couldn't give you an exact figure, but the, the modern carriage industry employs hundreds of people, which is not a drop in the bucket. No. Um, Palmetto Carriage has about 35 animals. Old South Carriage has about the same. Every carriage that takes tourists out, we pay a license fee and we pay a capitation tax, a head tax for every single tourist. And that equates to hundreds of thousands of dollars of tax revenue for the city of Charleston government. Nothing to sneeze at? No. No. <laughs> okay. All right. Christina, any last words you'd like to say before we sign off today? I think I would encourage anybody who comes to Charleston to slow down when you're walking around and don't trespass, but peek into yards because we have hundreds, if not thousands of surviving carriage houses, stable buildings, and they've been reused in all sorts of creative ways. So whether you like carriage horses or not, the architecture is still there. And I think when you visualize those buildings and the fact that they're in literally every neighborhood of downtown Charleston, it starts to give you a good visual impact of how many horses there were, and you would have seen them every day, everywhere. Okay. Christina Ray Butler, the author of Charleston Horsepower, Equine Culture in the Palmetto City. Thanks so much for being with us today on The Journal. Thank you so much. A true honor to be here. I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did. It was great having Christina Ray Butler back on the journal, especially to talk about this underexplored area of Charleston history. The equines who powered the city for centuries and who can still be seen in the streets of the city today. 
Without these animals and the people who work with them, the story of Charleston, South Carolina would have been very, very different. I'd also like to thank the folks at All Good Books and Five Points in Columbia for hosting us and for creating the Walter Edgar's Journal Book Nook. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. I'm Alfred Turner, and I produce the show, which is made possible by listener contributions to the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. Remember, the views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's Journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio or its underwriters. New episodes of Walter Edgar's Journal are published on the first and third Fridays of the month and are available at SouthCarolinaPublicRadio.org on the SCETV app, as well as your favorite podcast provider. We'll talk again soon.